Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, and today, surprise, surprise, we're going to be speaking about healthcare and, of course, uh, the COVID pandemic, of which we are all a part. And uh, I'm, I'm speaking to someone who's no stranger to the show for the first part of the show, and that is Dr. Anili Kaplan Murth, who is a doctor in Ottawa area. Uh, and we're going to catch up with her about what she's been doing and what it looks like right now in the third wave, which doesn't seem to be getting any better anytime soon. So welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, Doctor, and thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be back. Well, uh, one of the things you said to me before the show is that you 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 were working since seven this morning and you're going to keep working until Lord knows what time in the morning. What are you doing? What are you doing yeah. at that time? Yeah. So, you know, this started um, a week ago. Public health told us they're dropping off 200 doses of AstraZeneca vaccine. And I've been advocating, as you know, since really the end of December to try to get vaccine to be able to give to my patients. And um, so we finally had it. It was only, we were only able to give it to people ages 55 and over at the time. So we then started to um, reach out to our patients to try to book them for their vaccine. And I've spoken about the chaos and the lack of planning in, in this vaccination rollout across Ontario. Well, boy, oh boy, was it a mess. We had people who were telling us that um, they didn't want AstraZeneca and they were shopping around for other vaccines, not even necessarily because of any sort of hesitancy, but they were shopping around because they, they just felt that, that they could choose. And it was very much like choosing an ice cream flavor. And so, there was, you know, and then there were people who just, they, they were misinformed and, and didn't think that they should take the AstraZeneca. And so we're doing as much um, education and outreach as we could to our own patients, but it was very difficult. And um, so I spent a couple of days doing that. And then I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with my 200 doses if I can't convince people ages 55 and over to take it? And I was in this weird competition with public health advertising their clinics and um, and then pharmacies started advertising that they had AstraZeneca. And so it was very strange times. And, you know, my, my goal was just to make sure that everybody would be vaccinated. So we were saying, take what is offered, don't shop around. And I took to social media as I do. And so many, many people um, responded to both my, my reaching out through Twitter, as well as a journalist who spoke to me and wrote an article in the Ottawa Citizen talking about this vaccine shopping issue. All of a sudden I was inundated with people who aren't my patients asking for the vaccine. And so that was great. So then I spent like all day, every day, and, and when I say all day, I mean like starting at six in the morning and stopping at two o'clock in the morning, just booking people because then I have to take in their information and I have to set an appointment time for them. My staff and I had to spend some nights and my husband joined us trying to figure out how to use the COVAX Ontario system, which is this very cumbersome system that we then have to upload all of our patient information into. So we, we managed all of that. And then um, 
Ontario finally said, okay, you know what? Actually, you can give it to everybody 40 and over. Well, there was no problem amongst the 40-year-olds. They all came running and said, yes, we want it. So I had been given that initial 200 doses and I'd already used 122 of them, um, offering it to people who had approached me. And and so these are not my patients, but um, people who are truck drivers, people who are bus drivers, people who are grocers, people who are early childhood educators, people who are teachers, people who are construction workers, like all these people who we've been talking about as essential workers, people who have to work outside of the home and they could not for the life of them get access to the vaccine and they're running around and they've got their names on five different pharmacy wait lists and they've got their names in, in public health wait lists and they're just not getting the vaccine. So they're coming to me and literally I was phoning patients back at 10 o'clock at night and saying, this is Dr. Kaplan Mirth. I'm phoning to offer you a COVID vaccine. Can I book you for such and such a day? And, um, I'm sorry that I'm phoning you so late <laughs> and nobody was really minding that I was, but there was no time to do all of this. So we did actually manage once we could open it to the 40 year olds that all of my patients wanted it. And then also there are all the 40 year old patients or people who, who aren't my patients who came to me telling me their stories and, you know, they take care of a parent who has disabilities or they have children who have disabilities or they have disabilities or they have, um, jobs that that are unsafe and don't have paid sick leave and so all the reasons that we've been saying that we needed to really have all hands on deck um but all hands on deck sort of became for us in our little family practice um working like we said we would sort of 24 7 um to to get the vaccine out so tomorrow i i so i basically used up 200 doses, like as of today, I think it's Friday, um, we will have used up the 200 doses in five days, but I've got another 200 doses and 200 people booked for tomorrow. And so this is now the rest of my 40 year old patients. We have done every single 40 year old patient in my practice, as well as all of these teachers and, and people have been giving me lists. So I actually, um, I guess delegated. So I said to a teacher last night, look, you know, I have space for 50 teachers, but what I can't do is phone 50 people. So you get me all of their information, you send it to me, I will book them and send them a confirmation email with the consent form and I'll see them on Saturday. As I was doing this, um, and teachers and social workers and childcare providers and others, they absolutely, they, they, you know, they heard me saying this and they bombarded us. Um, but then I realized, okay, if I'm going to have 200 people coming to my office, and this is just a little community office, uh, then I need to have a way to safely have them all socially distanced outside, just like you have in a big vaccine clinic, only it's even better because it's just family medicine. It's like literally community. I've had six medical students volunteering to help me this entire week, my 12 year old daughter has been phoning patients to screen them for COVID before they come in all week, which she thinks is a lot more fun than going to virtual school. So I wrote to her teachers and said, please excuse her from her grade seven math homework. Um, and, uh, you know, but like this kind of pace, this is exhausting. And we are, I, I tweeted yesterday, I said to um, the city councilor, could you please help? I think I need to block the street so that I can set up chairs outside in the street. And that way people can come into my office, I can immunize them, and then they can go out on the street and the medical students will watch them and they have to sit there for 15 minutes and then they can go on their way knowing that they've just been immunized. So it's kind of magic. They're going to walk into the building, unimmunized, walk out of the building, immunized, and then they just have to sit there in this kind of, somebody, one of my patients referred to it as a 
Jabba-palooza. But we're not going to be partying in the streets. We're just going to be sitting there very quietly, very safely, smiling from ear to ear because all these people are immunized. So, I mean, that's, that is what I've been doing for the last week. And the reason it's, it's really taking so many hours is because every single patient, we have to create the file, we have to then upload it to COVAX Ontario. It's a lot of administrative work. And this is not something that should have to be done by us alone. But every family doctor, if we had been given the, if we'd been given the ability to immunize our own patients right from the start, I could have immunized all of my 100-year-olds, 90-year-olds, 80-year-olds, 70-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds, and now our 30-year-olds. And and then that would have taken pressure off of public health and pharmacies. So people who didn't have a family doctor could have, you know, and there needed to be some sort of centralized way for us to book this. Like this is craziness. So I have to tell people, please take your name off of all those pharmacy lists because I just gave you your vaccine and somebody else needs to be able to get it. The other I guess part of the story is we had Jagmeet Singh come to our office on Wednesday as the leader of the NDP. Um, and um, that was a huge honor. But we, um, you know, that the idea behind that is really to, first of all, let Canadians know that AstraZeneca is safe and effective and that everybody should get the first vaccine that's offered to them. Um, but also to try to talk about community health and medicine, family medicine, because it's just bizarre. Like, you know, the, and, and my pharmacy colleagues, I, I love them. They're so important. They're such an in, integral part of our healthcare system, but big pharmacies like shoppers are getting endless supplies of vaccine and family doctors, mostly in Ontario still don't have any. And so, you know, it, it really starts to feel like, um, there, there isn't a desire to make sure that we immunize everybody at as quickly and efficiently as we can. Um, and we, you know, the fact that back in December and January, you know, Brian Goldman and I were tweeting and saying, you know, we're ready to vaccinate. Like we really have been ready to vaccinate this whole time, but there is no clinic that is doing this 24 seven in Ontario. Not, you know, if most family doctors are still having to ask to participate in this, um, you know, what is that about? Why aren't we trying to engage with every single person who could, potentially help to answer questions and vaccinate. And all of the work that I've had to do, if I had one public health clerk to have helped me, then my husband wouldn't have had to step away from his job for this week to do it, right? So if you look at the mass vaccine clinics, there are dozens of public health clerks doing nothing but paperwork, and then there are dozens of nurses, and there's all of this infrastructural support. But family doctors are... Um, you know, having to do this without any of that support. So um, that that's a bit bizarre. And it, and it does just make it feel like, you know, do you want community-based care or not? Um, so Jagmeet Singh coming here, that was amazing. Um, he also happened to be voting in parliament that day. So he gave us a whole civics lesson. It was really cool. And then this morning, Joel Harden, who is our local MPP, um, came as well for his vaccine. So we've had um, just this kind of sprint in the past week. I have to say I'm exhausted for sure. And when I heard the announcement that um, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations has approved vaccines for 30 and over, although I, I don't think Ontario has approved it yet, um, but it, it both made me excited and it also made me feel like I might have a heart attack because I need to now immunize all of my 30 year olds, but 
you know, it's, it's, um, it would be nice if I had a little structural support from that. And, and the um, public health doesn't seem to advertise that there are other family doctors who are doing this. So it's disheartening when we still see people commenting, oh, well, my family doctor is not even working. Like that's just not true anywhere in Ontario. Or people saying, well, okay, Dr. Kaplan-Murth is, you know, um, such an advocate for this, but most people can't do this. Well, it's not true. And some of my colleagues are doing this. It's just, it's, it's like nobody reports on it. Everybody says, here are the pharmacies and here are the public health units. And even our own public health units don't say anywhere, these are the family doctors who are doing it, which I suspect, and, and maybe I'm just being cynical, but I suspect that if they actually talked about which family doctors are doing this, and there are plenty of them in Toronto as well as elsewhere in Ontario, but if, if we actually said, okay, well, there are this number of family doctors in Ontario, and here's the list of family doctors who are doing vaccinations in their clinics, um, I think that would put pressure on the, on the province because the province would not want to actually admit to the fact that they've ignored most family doctors. And, and then patients saying, well, why doesn't my family doctor have it? It's not because the family doctor didn't want it. It's because their public health unit and therefore the province didn't give it to them. So, um, you know, if we start talking about really the um, disparities and regional disparities, rural doctors not being able to access vaccine. Um, I've had some people who've come into my office for the vaccine this week who aren't living in downtown Ottawa. But fair is fair because when pharmacies had a pilot of AstraZeneca in Kingston, all the, all the people in Ottawa flocked to Kingston. So I don't see why I can't let a couple of people from, you know, Manatic or other areas outside of Ottawa come here and get their vaccine when they're essential workers. So that's, that's the sort of long story, but it's, it's the, the short story is we should be all hands on deck and we should be um, seeing so much more support for primary care. And every time a member of parliament goes and poses at another pharmacy, it makes a whole bunch of family doctors hearts break because it sends that, the, the signal to the public that there's only two options for where you can go to get your vaccine. We do this for every other vaccine. And um, it's just, um, you know, it's only slowing us down in our communities. So tomorrow's, tomorrow's Jabba-Palooza will be fun. We'll have, um, you know, like 200 more people immunized. Um, but then Public health has said to me, they'll, they'll give me another 100 or 200 doses. And I'm sure my 30-year-olds are going to be flocking to me for that, which is amazing. Um, but we need more support. And, and I can't be the one who is reaching out. In fact, so tomorrow morning, I'm starting my day by going to the home of somebody who has disabilities, which prevents them from being able to get out to a clinic. And they were supposed to be, public health was supposed to address that and go and, you know, in all of our cities that was supposed to happen. And this poor person is just sitting there unimmunized and can't get somebody to do it. So I'm taking a dose with me and I'm driving, actually first I'm walking to somebody's house in the morning to do them. And then at the end of the day, another person I'm driving to their house and giving them the last dose of the day. And it's um, like, you know, people, people with disabilities and people who are um, childcare providers and people who are teachers and people who are construction workers and like everybody needs this vaccine in order to, you know, for us to be able to get out of um, wave after wave of COVID. So, um, but I shouldn't have, like, it, it can't be me doing it. It needs to be, um, it needs to be that there aren't people out there saying, 
Dr. Kaplan-Mirth, can you please help me? What, like public health is supposed to be responding to that. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure that they are also responding to many people, but there are still so many people who are waiting and falling through the cracks. And one of my closest friends who um, is paralyzed and um, lives across the province, um, it was the same thing. He was on wait lists where he was supposed to, home care was supposed to come to him and give him the shot and nobody would. So I reached out on social media and a doctor in his area contacted me and said, Neely, I will help you. I can see that there are a lot of our patients who aren't getting the vaccine. Um, give me the person's information. And, you know, so it's kind of like pay it forward in terms of kindness. Cause you know, like she helped me with that person there who was not getting, not getting their vaccine. And I'm helping people in Ottawa who aren't getting their vaccine, um, you know, which is lovely, but I'm pretty sure Ontario was supposed to do this. And um, I'm pretty sure somebody was, you know, yeah. Anyway, that's that's the story. Um, talking here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you just tuned in uh, to an amazing doctor, um, a, a real firebrand who's been fighting uh, the hard fight out there in the community for public health and for getting the vaccine out. And that's Dr. Uh, Neely Kaplan-Mirth. Um, I, I have so many questions, but just a very quick one. Uh, what about this hesitancy? We even see it coming from medical quarters now about AstraZeneca for 30-year-olds or even 40-year-olds, that maybe it shouldn't be given to under 50. Is this is this just a question of scarcity or is there some science behind it? So just quickly, maybe. Uh, so. I yeah so I mean I defer to I defer to my infectious disease and epidemiology and virology colleagues in terms of whether the science is solid and you know to be honest um, it's been really hard through the pandemic to be able to separate what is politics and what is science and so I um, I have um, to trust that when Health Canada approves something, that it is because it's safe. And when the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations approves something, I trust that it's safe. You know, so when they say, yes, you can give this vaccine to somebody 30 and over, I have to trust that it's safe. But but it is something, I mean, our, our heads have been spinning and spinning and spinning as to, you know, well, what if it is politics? What if it, you know, but I have to really believe that um, that our our medical organizations and our medical colleagues aren't going to lead us astray. That being said, I, you know, I, I um, would also be humble and say um, that we, um, you know, we have to we have to trust our colleagues, but we also um, know that, you know, the Ministry of Health um, has said things like schools are safe and no, they're not. So, uh, you know, like that, and, and that just makes you feel crazy. And that's the gaslighting that we've been talking about and the lack of transparency that we've been talking about. But those are the actual politicians saying that, um, you know, I turn to, I turn to my colleagues who are, um, who are people of, um, uh, you know, high ethical and um, scientific standard and, and, and rely on what they say. And the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations has nothing to do with the Ontario Ministry of Health. So, you know, like I, I have to trust the independent arms of scientists who are saying that something's safe and, um, and, and really hope that that is true. And we do need people to get the vaccine and, and to not 
um, you know, the, the risks in terms of um, clotting are something that um, we've accepted for, for decades with oral contraceptive pills. And, you know, we don't want people saying, yeah, I don't want that one, I want a different one. Um, everybody's seen the cartoon of the, you know, life boy as, as somebody's about to go over the falls and, you know, it says AstraZeneca and they don't take it, they say they'll wait. Well, like, we can't do that. So um, so I'm following the lead of my, my medical colleagues and scientific colleagues. Um, but at the same time, I do acknowledge that, you know, when, when the Ontario Ministry of Health says, oh, schools are fine, but then teachers are dying, you know, that just makes me feel like that's um, like, just if only we could be transparent, if only we could be honest and, um, and stick with the science, it would help a lot. Um, and, and just a follow-up question to that. I mean, the four-month wait, especially for people in their 80s and their 90s or people with disabilities, um, has been problematic. I mean, I, I hope with the, the news from the federal government that millions of Pfizer doses are coming in as we speak, and there's lots in the refrigerators, too, that that gets moved up. Have you heard anything about that? So um, um, some of my highly esteemed colleagues who are infectious disease specialists have said to me, um, and, and said to the public as well that, um, that, you know, when we delay, when we increase the interval of time between one dose and a booster dose, that's often very effective. In fact, it might even help, right? There are many vaccines that we do that for, for pediatrics. Um, there are vaccines that we do that for in adults. So the fact that we, like I'm waiting, I was supposed to, I had my first dose when I was out giving shots in February and um, I had Moderna then, and I was supposed to on March 10th, get my booster. And on March 9th, I responded by public health and told as of midnight tonight, you have to wait four months. So you don't get yours until June. And, um, and I don't even have a date booked because I'm sort of outside of the system just because of how it happened. So um, I have to trust um, in, again, like the, you know, if my infectious disease colleagues who I, I very much have high regard for are saying, Neely, it's okay, we're, we're good. We have, you know, we have that first dose and, um, and we will get that second dose. Um, and, and if anything, it, it may actually be beneficial to have waited. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. Now we are, um, allowed to uh, give boosters to people who are immunocompromised if they're undergoing chemotherapy, because they're already like, we have to often, you know, redo vaccines for anybody who's undergone chemotherapy. We have to redo them anyhow, as they're already immunocompromised. So that's a different kettle of fish. And those are people who, who do need the, the booster dose sooner. But, um, but I'm not panicked. I'm not worrying at night because I have to wait for the four months. Um, I just hope that when my performance is approaching that somebody remembers that I'm a family doctor who still needs my booster. Thank you. Uh, speaking again to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth here, um, uh, of course, about the rollout of the vaccine process and how uh, she's doing as a family physician who's giving out doses, as all family physicians uh, should be able to do. Um, we've, we Today on social media, we saw uh, photos of 
empty, um, empty immunization sites with people sitting around waiting and nobody sitting in those chairs uh, getting their jabs. And then huge lineups at other, uh, at other places, you know, um, that went around the block for people who sleeping overnight, you know, in the hot spots, 18 plus um, in Toronto. I mean, this is just unconscionable. Um, and, you know, we, we, I think the last time we, we spoke, we were paying a general uh, Hillier 20,000 a month to, uh, to spearhead all of this. Clearly, not working very well um, or very seamlessly. What should have happened? We don't have a lot of time left in this interview. What should have happened? What could have happened? And what can we do from here on in to make it better? Honestly, I mean, they should have they should have had public health and primary care at the um, at the planning table right from the start. We know the community, we know the vulnerable populations, we know the inequalities and discrepancies in terms of urban rural, in terms of um, high risk uh, populations, in terms of um, high risk uh, areas of town. Like we should have had some sort of true plan in place and there are provinces that did. And so there's no excuse for Ontario. Look at Nova Scotia, look how beautifully they did. And that's, you know, when, when I got together with a bunch of colleagues and we spoke to the prime minister in February, that's what we talked about, the inequality and the disparities and the models that really have worked um, could have been replicated in other places. So Ontario has just gone further and further um, by, um, you know, letting non-essential businesses be open by refusing to have paid sick days, by refusing to um, really take care of, of community and, um, and by failing to plan. So yeah, you know, next time around, let's hire a bunch of family doctors and public health experts. And this would like, I mean, look, look what we can achieve if we actually have the, you know, the ability to do um, what we know is right. So yeah, it's just, um, uh, that is what we've been saying all along. This was preventable. It was really, truly preventable. And um, it really was predictable. So yeah. Um, apparently, the organization that organized the Nova Scotian rollout is actually situated in Ontario. So it's we a, know, and I think <laughs> yeah. the, I think the people who programmed their system are actually from Ottawa. So we just cry at night about that. Yeah. Uh, just very quickly, we've just got a couple of minutes left. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, uh, Dr. Kaplan Murth. Um, and, and you know, what about the ICUs? What about what's happening in our hospital systems? Uh, I know it's horrendous in Toronto and we're shipping patients out. Uh, what's the situation like in Ottawa these days? So the situation in Ottawa, um, my understanding is that the Children's Hospital, um, my colleague who is a, who's an anesthesiologist who would normally be working in pediatrics, um, you know, was asked to be ready to go and work in the adult world. Um, they have beds ready at the Children's Hospital for adults. Um, like Ottawa's actually been in, in pretty rough shape. Uh, and, um, you know, and when we see our colleagues, our nursing colleagues in the ICU saying that they have to choose who to give the oxygen to, that they, you know, like that, that um, trauma, both to the, to the families of people who, who are sick. And we had a 40 year old die yesterday in Ottawa of COVID. And, um, you know, when, when we, when we see that and, um, and we, you know, hear calls for, for, um, 
physicians and nurses to be, um, you know, ready to go and work in ICUs. Um, it just brings back all the nightmares of watching that happen, you know, a year ago in Italy and a year ago in, in Brooklyn, New York. And, um, you know, my goodness, like we really, we, we knew, we knew what we were and, and all the, all the, all the uh, research and all the scientists and all the physicians and the nurses who said, you know, we've got to do something so that we don't end up here. And then here we are. So yeah, that's, you know, it's really scary. And I mean, as a family doctor, I don't mind working from six in the morning to two in the morning, getting immunizations out, because that's what I can do. And, um, you know, my colleagues who are working in the ICU, I just, my heart breaks for them, because it's, it's unbearable to think that you have to decide who's going to get the oxygen. It's just unbearable. Thank you. Uh, I've been speaking to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth here on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the hours you're spending doing it and um, wish you didn't have to quite so much. Me Thank too. you. Take care. You're very welcome. Bye. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, it's always, you know, it's, it's exhausting talking to Dr. Kaplan Berth about her her life and her days. And I'm going to move uh, in a different direction now. And this is a uh, this is a young man that we had on last week. And I said I wanted to have him back, and we're doing it because uh, first of all, he's one of the founders of Doctors for Defunding the Police, which of course you know, listeners of Radical Reverend, um, that we're all about. But also, I want to talk to him about the other part of health, which is mental health, not just physical health. Um, certainly that's been under threat and attack during the pandemic, but I wanna talk more, um, more long-term. Um, you know, these problems didn't start with the pandemic. They're not gonna stop with it either. Um, so I wanna welcome uh, Samir Bully to the Radical Reverend Show again. Samir, it's very rare that I have somebody on two weeks in a row. So, uh, so hey, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I feel really honored to be very honest. Um, yeah, so just I kind of want to get into a little bit because where we left off last week, I think was a very, very important part where we talked about the police and mental health and how we as like I'm going to psychiatry, that's where I want to be. The way that we work with the police is hand in hand because the way that form ones work and the way that the mental health system work, um, if there's someone in an acute crisis, someone who is a threat to somebody else, someone who is a threat to themselves, we have to bring them into the hospital one way or another. That is what we do. The way we do it now is we send out these form ones, which means an officer can, technically an officer is going out into the community to find these people wherever they are. What we're seeing and what like I've seen and what, this system doesn't work. This this straight up, this does not work. We are not healing the same people. I, I, was, I was working in the psych merge a couple months ago, um, literally within my six week block being there you'd see the same patients come from multiple states just over and over again. And it was like, they would get better. You'd give them the medication they needed or whatever they need at the time. The second they get back out into the community, they deteriorate because the supports or what they needed wasn't there. What, where I wanna focus specifically is these are marginalized, like everyone within these hospitals in these marginalized, racialized, you know how they're the same people dying of COVID, the same people you'll see in here. What we need to start understanding about mental health is it is a 
full part of health. It isn't just a side like, hey, yeah, worry about your mental health. This It is probably one of the most central parts of what makes a human okay and how you live your day-to-day life. And if we need to start focusing on it, just straight up. We need to change how we do it. We see through COVID-19, there are stats coming out like 40% of Canadians are now saying they experience anxiety they never had before. Like new stats are coming out. And it's, we're hoping that people understand that this can happen to anyone. Nobody chooses to be in a mental health crisis or have mental health issues, but we need to address it in a way that's systemic and overarching. Yeah. Uh, so Samir is, is at U of T now, medical student um, aiming for psychiatry. Um, and uh, thank you for explaining Form 1s. And yes, um, I mean, I did uh, my undergrad, you know, decades ago. But anyway, um, and I took psychology as a, as a minor and did do a stint at what was then Queen Street Mental Health Center, right now CAMH. Um, and I, I remember it was the most depressing uh, year. I mean, I just, my mood would f- go down as I took that bus down Ossington and got off and, you know, went into my like field ed placement. Um, and, and partly why it was so depressing is, as you say, these are marginalized folk. These are, um, and what they need first and foremost is they need housing, which they didn't have. Um, and and plus, you know, then I, in political life, I represent Parkdale, I represented Parkdale High Park for 12 years. And, you know, this is where a lot of the folk that came out of that generation of Queen Street, you know, when they discharged them mm-hmm. uh, from institutional care, they went out into the community. And I remember a chaplain back then saying, um, we're discharging them to death. That's how she described it, because we're sending people out there with a prescription in their hand, right? Um, and uh, they don't have social, they don't have housing, you know, social work, you know, Yes, sometimes, you know, um, and of course, um, it, you know, and, and even today, supportive housing is so hard to get into. So um, so I guess the question then is like to take the lens back a bit on the social determinants of, house, of health, um, you know, what would you do? I mean, what do you do as a psychiatrist in a system that is so broken? Um, what do you do? That that is the number one question. And that is the question I ask myself every day when it's like, hey, everyone in medicine has to pick a specialty where they see themselves for the rest of their lives. And the only place I can see myself now is psychiatry, because there are people in the field of psychiatry who practice it so well in such a way that just you can see how they, they, they change their patients lives directly. You can see how because of the way the people can understand the human characteristics and the faults of the person and heal them in that specifically they need. It's, it's such a beautiful art. Like psychiatry is a different art. But again, there's not that many of them, right? Like it takes time to do that stuff and you have to invest to do that stuff. So how do we change it on a scale that is big enough and vast enough to, to affect the most average person who, who is in a crisis or who doesn't have the best doctor close to them? What I think and what I think is kind of radical, but is used in other countries and it's been used around the world is I I don't think psychiatrists and psychologists should be the only ones really leading mental health and really being the only ones providing mental health care within communities because mental health is what we do not have enough people trained currently right now to be able to handle the issues we have. We need to be able to train another generation now of nurses, uh, other health practitioners, other community members, especially religious service workers. These these people who are already doing stuff in the community, in a way, with mental health incorporated in how they work, and figure out ways to empower them and empower the community. Because 
you cannot just fix mental health with pills and medicine and just like an idea of like, we sit down and we're going to fix your problems. That, that's insane. That doesn't, that doesn't work. What we're trying to do is figure out ways that you can go back into your society, back in your community and integrate, fix out, figure out ways to work, figure out ways that work for you. And what we're doing now doesn't do any of that. We just blow over. We try to do a one size fits all. Like we try to do a little bit of an internal medicine type of thing with psychiatry where it's like, here's an algorithm. If you have this uh, percentage of blood, this is your hemoglobin. We're going to give you this. And this is it. Psychiatry, like that doesn't really work with people, right? People are very complex. We're working with a brain that's very, very, we're still learning about it. Like we learn about it every day. We learn about brain strength and how we can, like we learn about brain plasticity. We learn about so much. But if we want to change the system, it, it can't come from the top down. It cannot only be the way we have it now. We need to figure out ways to democratize and socialize taking care of each other and taking care of each other's mental health. I mean, one of the things that that's really glaring, I think, in Canada and in Ontario, for sure, um, is, uh, you know, it, first of all, it's really difficult for people to get an appointment with a psychiatrist. I mean, there are very few and it's really difficult, huge waiting lists, etc. Um, and then if you're going to go to a psychologist or a therapist, you're going to pay out of your pocket. And unless you have a really good plan through your place of work, which very few have, um, then it's a very expensive venture. Um, and, and so, so it really just isn't available to a lot of people. I, I mean, I'm clergy, obviously, and a lot of clergy in different faiths it de facto provide counseling and, and help. Um, but I mean, really, we, we are, we can't do it on a week to week consistent basis for one person. There's just not enough hours in the day for us. So, so then you, you're referring people on to what? To an expensive pastime, you know what I mean? Or to a waiting list um, where at the end of that waiting list, you're not sure. And, you know, I'm just being speaking personally, you're not sure whether they're going to get somebody who's just going to give them a pill without talking to them. Um, can, I tell or, story? Can, I, can I actually tell a story about that? Let yes, please. Ha that literally happened to somebody in the community that reached out to us. So um, I work with the, I was the co-president of Black Medical Students and uh, we do a lot of work in Black mental health and in the community. So with our events, um, we talk about the stigma of Black mental health, how to get help, where to go, how to do it, all of these things. I got a message one day from a DM from a woman um, and she was talking about how she just, she was waiting to her child with her daughter was 15 years old and suicidal. Um, she was waiting for the longest time to get an appointment through the ROHIP system. After a year, she got an appointment, finally got an appointment. She goes to the doctor, and during that whole time, the, the, the daughter and the, the mother are sitting in the, the room with the, the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist starts nitpicking the mother and so always like constantly going into like, what about your child care? What, what's going on here? Like, let's go into that. And this mother felt so distressed that she came to us and said, I don't know what to do. My daughter is going to die. I don't know what's going to happen next. And we had to go and go through all our networks and try to find somebody that could come and take them. And we were lucky, we were very lucky. We had an amazing woman, Donna Alexander. She's a nurse who, like she's a nurse who does everything. She is literally just the, there are people who take control of situations and try to make the best of it for everybody. And this is that type of person. And she made the infrastructure for this woman just to make some space for her and find spaces for them. This type of stuff happens all the time. Like this person waited a year to see a doctor. And then within the first couple of minutes of being in that appointment, she was destroyed. What, like this, what if they didn't have us? 
Like, what would happen next? We, we're scared to think of those, those things. Well, and people are intimidated by people in white coats and not even white coats. You know what I mean? They're intimidated, especially, you know, especially if there's language barriers or if there's cultural barriers. So, uh, I, I mean, I'll tell you a personal story, too, which which will ring with what with. But anyway, my situation. So my children, um, their dad died car accident when they were young. So my son at nine years old. Um, you know, came home from school one day, his teacher phoned me and said, your son's talking about killing himself. Now he's nine years old, probably doesn't know how to do that or what that really means. But of course, it's a huge red flag. So what do I do as a parent? So I took him to sick kids in those days. So, you know, rest assured, not sick kids today. Took him to sick kids in those days, sat and we waited with a nine-year-old in that waiting room I, I we, for four or five hours before anybody came to see us. Then finally, a, a resident came down and said to my nine-year-old, so out of 10, how much do you want to kill yourself? And 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 my son said, 10, you know, what was he going to say? And so anyway, eventually we get up onto the ward. Um, this is a nine-year-old. He's been sitting downstairs for like four hours, bored out, bouncing off the walls. So I, we can hear screaming from some of the rooms down the hall. Um, there's a TV in this little area. So he starts watching The Simpsons. So he's watching The Simpsons. A, a nurse, I guess that's what she was, came out and she said, oh, no, no, he can't watch television. He hasn't earned the privilege yet. I, I honestly, I'm not making any of this up. So luckily, you know, I have some skills. So I said, listen, all we want to do, he, this child told them the story again, this child needs to speak to somebody. Is there somebody that could speak to my child? And she said, well, actually, a psychologist doesn't come in until tomorrow morning. But you, you know, just, you know, could, he can have a room and, and just leave him here. And I said, there's no way <laughs> that I'm leaving him here, right? Um, and she said, well, and she put us in a room with a glass, you know, like a glass. And, and she said, well, we'll have to watch him. And, and all of a sudden, being, being a, you know, a kid. So my son said, you know what, mom? I don't want to kill myself anymore. I just want to go home and play video games, right? Like smart child, right? Yeah. But I yeah. think in that moment... Had I left him, had I, you know, kind of thought, oh, these people know what they're doing. Maybe they know better than I and left this poor little kid there. The outcome would have been disastrous. Right. I mean, I could see the trajectory um, and I have skills and I have cultural capital. Not it, like so. I mean, that was my experience. Now, that's, you know, a while back, you know, but I'm just saying that's what it used to be like. And there's some instances where it's not that different right now. Right. It, you're 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 speaking to what you're talking about is what I hear from the community constantly. You feel like you're not heard. You feel like you're going to institutionalize me without even understanding what's going on. Like I'm here to try to get help. Can you help me understand why? It's there's a lot. There's a lot of issues. Okay, so I'm going to ask you then and focus back on you, Samir Bully. I'm speaking to a medical student now, um, who's one of the founders for Doctors for Defunding the Police, which we spoke about last week. But today we're talking about mental health. So you're you're a student. You're gonna you're gonna you know graduate into the system. How are you gonna change it? That is the question that keeps everyone up at night, and like every, my friends, especially the ones that come out of. I say there, there's a group of medical students that I'm coming up with that are very, very understanding that the social determinants of health, cultural capital, understanding that we are privileged, like we have to fix, we have a duty. Doctors are so privileged, like it's so insane. And with that, going into psychiatry and going into something that just seems so 
vast and so un unchangeable and so static and so like you see the, the if you see the tops like i think i told you the story last time like um one of my friends she's a first year resident in psychiatry and um she was told in one of her first lectures she was told by one of the professors um going over ptsd and they talk about the things that can cause ptsd and they go over sexual trauma they go over like uh violence and war then they say like yes but that's pretty much it and then she goes into like what about racial trauma and generational trauma of just and she's like, no, we don't know enough about that type of stuff and all that. And it's like, she got a fight and the girl obviously won and put her in her place. But this is the type of stuff that happens right now in psychiatry, in UFT. And it's completely, they do not understand the issues that are happening in, on the ground. And so what we're, what we're trying to say, I feel like the, the, the kind of craziness in the ideas that we have is we want to go into the system and literally shout at every like just call everything what it is no no hiding anything we like i've worked a couple i've only done like two or three months in the wards i can tell you i'm i will tell you how many bad experiences i've seen and they've been insane like this type of stuff if we keep talking about it, it's a new world that we think is coming up a very connected social world a world where we can share what's going on we can share pictures and videos tell people stories and make people feel what's going on so people aren't just statistics anymore and if we can keep humanizing these people and human, every day there's more people that keep going through this stuff. It's not like it's hard to do it. And we think that there is a chance the system changes. And if you don't, I'm, a, I'm an optimistic person to be completely honest, both my parents are refugees. Like if, if, I, if I don't have that idea of the, that, I'm like a serial optimist. Like if you don't think that it can be better then it probably won't be. So then if we can, if we see a fight that we can pick, if we see the holes that we can fill, if we can see where we can go, like there, there, there's places, there's definitely spaces. And I wanna say that a lot of the, it's weird because we, the deans all know us, like the top doctors know who we are and what we do. And they'll talk to us. And like, when they talk to us, there, there isn't the level of disrespect that they, what we, we should get, that we would have gotten if this was 10 years ago. If this was 10 or 15 years ago, it's like, these students are crazy. They're saying stuff that is directly against us. They're exposing everything. But now they kind of have to play patty cake with us. Like they, they know they don't agree with us, but they can't really stop us because a majority of the public kind of agrees with us. So it's a very interesting thing. We really need this. The, we need society. We need community. It, it has to get away from these institutions and the ivory towers. They do not understand anything on the ground. And we have to really show them what's happening. Yeah. Speaking to uh, Samir Boulay, and I just pulled up, as a, you can't see this, of course, in Radio Land and uh, on podcasts, but I pulled out a background for my book. Um, so I'll, I guess I might as well do a shameless plug now uh, for the queer evangelist. Um, and uh, But the quote is, every revolution seemed impossible until it happens, right? Um, and that that is uh, absolutely the history of the world, actually. That's not utopian. <laughs> That's how things happen. Um, and it is kind of interesting. I mean, I so let's let's talk, you know, in the minutes that we've got left a bit about big pharma, because like mm -hmm. let's talk about that. Um, I mean, certainly COVID has shown us, and there's uh, you know, this this discussion is happening around the around the world um in terms of patents on you know vaccines. Um like this is life-saving and in countries, developing countries that don't have the kind of money we have in the West. I mean, we're complaining about our lack of vaccines here. Um, I mean, <laughs> we're privileged in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of the world. So, um, sh you know, should there be patents on, on, on things like that? Or, or more to the point, you know, should governments be producing this? You know, and again, we used to in Canada, we don't anymore, et cetera, et cetera, have our own. Um, but, but, but I can think of no 
um, no field in medicine really that's been so, and, and in a sense, revolutionized really by pharma than psychiatry. Okay. Um, I mean, wow. Um, you know, like, you know, went from, uh, went from not a lot, um, back in, you know, say Freud's day. I mean, it was completely talk therapy to some really outrageous stuff. Some of which is still going on, like, electroshock therapy, just gonna throw that out there. Um, but um, but I mean, now this has certainly opened up things for folk, but but how do you navigate the, you know, like what's what's good and um, and what's just, you know. Let me just put it like this, Everything, yeah. everything's bad. Everything about pharma, every little, literally AstraZeneca, because it was going through um, Oxford or whatever, Oxford AstraZeneca, they, when it was originally was coming out, they were going to make it patent free, apparently. Then Bill Gates came in and they're the ones who try to say like, no, we want you to sell it to uh, this disease companies and make sure you patent and get it out. This stuff is insane. We The public is what, like the people who sequenced COVID-19 posted it for free for the world to have. Then like the majority of the money back to fund the research, a lot of it was from public dollars. Like we have a system where Public, publicly financed, like the university labs, they get all the studies, we study everything, we figure out what's going on. Then the second is time to be profitable. The pharma companies step in, bring all their patents, all their lawyers and all the everything and say, this is what we're gonna do. They, this, is in, this is literally, it's like, a, it's like a mob. It's like a mafia that kind of controls the situation. Pharmacare, like pharmacare was something that is the easiest, most logical, like any economical argument against it doesn't exist. Like, it's like, okay, can we at least have some standardization? Like if we have a big pool of people and we can negotiate together, prices tend to go down. That's kind of natural. That makes normal logical sense. But here we have everyone so tied with the big pharma lobbyists that they say like, oh, if we decide to bring pharmacare in, then we're gonna lose all our medications. There's gonna be no more innovation. Like the companies were the ones doing innovation. They're the ones starving all their innovation. They're the ones stopping all the, like the kids like me, the kids that grew up with us, they want to go into these fields and they, they have the passion to do more because we care about our community. Money is not the only motivating factor they think it is. And that's the problem. They think that they have a very convoluted view on the world, like very, very convoluted. And us in healthcare and us in like community as part of society, we see each other, we want to take care of each other, right? Like I'm not good if my neighbor isn't good. These ideas of profitability, profiting off of people's suffering at all costs, this is absolutely dystopian. And this type of, the country that does this and does it constantly, Canada, 10th richest country in the world. We were, we, we were hoarding vaccines to level one in the originally, but we got 10 times the vaccines that everyone else wanted. We have countries that still don't have any vaccines now. Like we have to figure out a way to make, because these patents stop the vaccines from, there's, every, there's factories all over the world that have the capability to build these things. Like it doesn't only have to be built in these factories that have the patents only. We can figure out ways to bring the technology to other countries, figure out ways to share, figure out ways to make sure we, if this was a real global war, like you know how we talked about we're a war against COVID, everybody against COVID, we're all on the same team. Wouldn't we use all the weapons we could? Wouldn't we make the vaccine for everybody? Wouldn't we share the patents and do what we could to make it better for people? But that's, it's just rhetoric. It's not real. It's like the essential workers and healthcare hero thing. It's all fake. They do not care. Like if they call you something, but don't raise your wages or make your life better, 
it's disrespectful. They shouldn't go to die. I love your I love your energy, Samir. Um, it's great speaking to Samir Bully here on the Radical Reverend Show, and we're speaking about the other side of health. Of course, well, there's not two sides, all sides, but mental health. Um, and uh, uh, Samir, uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Doctors Who Defund um, the Police, uh, and also headed for a, a career in psychiatry. I remember um, as a, a legislator going to Sweden. I wanted to see a system that worked better um, where they have pharmacare, they produce, you know, I, I didn't, I saw nothing but generic when I was there in their pharmacy and it looked like walking into Ikea, you know, the same designer of their medications. It was wild. Um, but yeah, I mean, pharmacare is kind of a no brainer. It's been being promised uh, forever and we still don't have it. Um, like we don't have sick days in Ontario. Um, anyway, ho- you know, hopefully something will happen soon. Um, so, so again, the social determinants of health and, and now we're seeing particular stresses with COVID. So in, in racialized communities, you know, we saw pictures today on social media of, you know, um, and some vaccine sites empty, totally empty, almost like 40 people sitting around waiting to, you know, vaccinate people and nobody there. And then in another shot of lineups around the block in hotspot areas, people who camped out overnight to be able to get in line. Um, the distribution is ridiculous, let's just say it, you know. Um, but I mean, and then of course we know that racialized communities are dying faster. So what what needs to happen there? What needs to happen? We all know what needs to happen at this point. Like, first off, Doug Ford has to resign for, for the blood that's been on his hands. Like, it's it's not even like a conversation we can have. I have friends that mothers have died from this. They're in the community. They were working hard. They were listening to the rules. They're doing everything they were told to do, and then they die and they don't get help. We we saw like there's news coming out that he was sending the vaccines to to area codes that were voting for him versus our hotspots. Like they, they said, we need 50% of vaccines on the hotspots. And he said, no, we'll make it 25%. And they said, why? No, no reason. Like none, they can just do what they want because you're in charge. Are you, I know I know the way politics works here in our electoral system works. I know they're in charge, but do you not have to care for the people that exist? This is not how politics or community or anything should ever run. These communities have always, vaccines hesitancy is something that was put of honest. That was never something that was ever like intrinsic to the communities there. You don't trust the systems there because the systems were never made to help you. If if the system, if the schools are garbage, if my roads are garbage, if my community is, you see it deteriorate, the police are trying to kill me. Why would I believe you the vaccine you have for me is good? Like it's such an easy thing to understand, but these media, politicians, whatever, they want to obfuscate it and make it seem like it's an argument because if it's an argument, then they don't have to actually get to the root of the problem. And the real problem is so basic. Everyone's seen it. It's been the, we've talked about it for decades. All we have to do to fix these issues is invest in these communities because they are smart, they're capable, they can do it themselves. Like for an example, did you know uh, in Toronto, um, low income neighborhoods are classified as under $32,000 a year. 50% of uh, people that live in low income neighborhoods have a post-secondary education. They have a degree, degree in something. They went to school, they're educated. They're not as stupid as you keep making them seem. Like if you see the media, you make it, you think these people are idiots. These people are just trying to survive and they're trying to do their best and they're smart. I just want to empower them, give them the money, let them do what they want to do because you'll see a change in the community when they can invest in what they think is proper. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the housing conversation is, I refuse to even engage in it because uh, 
uh, it makes no economic sense. I was when I was first elected, I was a housing critic, and I remember sitting with the then housing minister and saying we had research to show that it cost about I, I don't know back then like 150, say 200 dollars a night to to stay in a shelter. This, this is how much it actually costs, and that's not that's not counting the you know. <laughs> you know, the, the carceral system, it's not counting the healthcare system that they're going to use more of both. I mean, it's not even counting that. So, so my question was, you can put them, it's not a great hotel room. It wasn't back then, but you could put them in a hotel room for that. Like what, like what, what sense does this make? And, um, and, and bottom line that there is no answer, but the real answer is they didn't want to put the money up front into building and providing housing because that's a big chunk of money. And then, you know, you don't see the payoff for maybe five to 10 years. And by then you're maybe out of office and somebody else is cutting the ribbon on that yeah. housing, you know? So, I mean, that's why they don't do it. So they're thinking like a bookkeeper, not like an economist or like, so, I mean, it's just like the columns have to match, right? I, it's, ridiculous um and that's really the motivation is political it's absolutely not even economic it's just um pure evil and i and and i and i makes me kind of cringe when i see politicians talk about housing because i don't believe any of it like i none of it not the progressives not the not the right-wing people it's all about getting elected in the next cycle it's so insane to me and hopefully i like that that's the the dream is we build infrastructure that can keep pushing real community people into these positions of power that can actually, okay, I don't care if I get reelected next time, I'm going to stand up for my community and do what's right, no matter what. And with that, it's economically viable over the long term. It will make these communities so much stronger. There's stats that show like every $1 invested into like early edu childhood education, you get $7 on your economy. Like there are no economic arguments for what we see today. And that is the biggest problem here. Yeah. Well, thank you, Samir. Always fun. I love your energy, Samir Bully, uh, uh, one of the co-founders of Doctors to Defund the Police and uh, talking about mental health and physical health today on the Radical Reverend Show. So do uh, keep your comments coming and uh, always love them and keep listening wherever you listen. SoundCloud, iTunes, on CIUT 89.5 FM. A shout out to the only alternative radio station left in Toronto. And thank you, Samir, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you for having me.